All right, you guys got your study sheets, you got your pens. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 25. Genesis 25. Um, last week we did something a little different. Your intern youth pastor is speaking. <laughs> last week we did something a little different where we started out by reading James chapter 3 all in its entirety, and then we went in and did a couple of cross-references. We looked at a couple other passages of Scripture. Uh, tonight, we are going to cover James chapter 4, but I am not going to have you turn there at all. Uh, I've actually done something a little different. We're going to be looking at the cross-references and turning mostly there. So if you uh, are new to the Bible or... if Maybe you're not new to the Bible, but uh, you've been walking with the Lord for quite some time and still don't know where the books of the Bible are. We have some kindergartners who can teach you how to memorize the books of the Bible so you know where it's at uh, right now. Um, so if you are... What is going on right now? He's got distracted. If you are new to the Bible and you need help finding the passages, just ask the person next to you, even if you don't know who that person is. I'm sure we're a very friendly bunch here. So they will help you get to where you need to go. We're doing a study now about the marks of a maturing disciple. Disciple simply means what? A follower of God. We have a ministry here. That's a, it's actually the central focus of our entire church. Everything that we do stems from one-on-one -on -one discipleship, where an older believer or someone who's a little bit more mature and further along in their faith sits down with somebody who's a little bit younger in their faith and goes through the fundamentals of the Bible, the fundamentals of the faith, because... Not just so you can know the Bible more and know what this book has to say, but because of what? We all have a... Starts with M. Mission. Well, yes, for you. That answer is correct for you. But we all have a mission. You see, when God saved us, when God established His local order of things for a home, for church, for government, all of these institutions that He gave us in the Bible, it wasn't just for us to just know what to do and fill up our time with. No, He has a very specific mission for each and every single one of us that we need to know what it is so we can accomplish for Him. And that's why we meet and gather. That's why we open up the Bible so that we can see what does God's Word have to say. Because to be honest with you, who gives a rip about anything that I have to say? Can I get an amen on that, Andy? Amen. He didn't even hear a word I just said. Yeah, I know. But who cares what I or anybody standing behind a pulpit in any church has to say? In any church. Or any religion, for that matter. We here hold to the Bible as being the Word of God. It's never been proven wrong. We can go through both internally and externally to show you how this book is no ordinary book, that God gave it to us supernaturally, and it is, in fact, His Word. It's how He communicates with us. If we want to know what to expect from God and want to know what our mission is, we go to the book. And that's why we have Bible studies on Wednesdays and Sundays in order to see that. And so I want to challenge each and every single one of you, especially with what we're going to cover tonight. I don't care if this is your first time in a church or if you've been coming all of your life to church. If you look at the words of this book tonight, not as it's the words of man, but as it is in truth, the words of God Almighty, this book will have a profound impact on your life. And it can completely, and this isn't hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating. It will completely change the course of your life forever. There are several people in this room who can tell you that as a fact because it happened to them. 
So with what we cover tonight, if you listen to this as though it is the word of Almighty God, it's powerful enough to change the course of your very life and your existence and give you a mission. So the title of tonight's message on your outline is called Submission, taken from James chapter 4, and we'll see that tonight. Introduction, follow along with me. We are all going to submit to something or someone in our lives. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield, and that word yield simply means submit or, or to, uh, to, well, yeah, submission. It basically means to submit or submission. Whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. According to this verse, there's only two things that you are going to submit to. It's either going to be things that pertain unto sin and consequently death, or it's going to be obedience unto righteousness. There is no in-between. There is no gray area with God. God is very black and white, and this book is very black and white. We're all going to serve or submit to someone or something. One will kill your walk with God, while the other will further it. And that is why submission to God marks a maturing disciple. So here in, the, in Genesis 25, we're actually going to go on a little bit of a journey here. And the first bullet point I want you to see here is that worldliness will stunt your growth as a believer. Does anybody know what worldliness means? Yeah, Kagan. Being like the world, um, enjoying things that are in this world, particularly things that are simple. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, we even have a Bible verse that helps us to see that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's talking about a system of operations here, and he goes on to define it. If any man love the world, love the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, things that make you feel good, things that you want to do, the desires that you have in and of yourself to do that's not right, not good, not pure. And the lust of the eyes, things that your eyes see, that you want more of, that you crave for. And the pride of life. We can do a whole list on this board here and go around the room and everybody shares something that pertains to all of these things. Maybe it's another person that you lust after. Maybe it's that sports car. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's grades. Because of that last one, the pride of life making a name for yourself, making a reputation for yourself. Trying to stand out above the rest in order to puff up yourself. These are all things that are found within the world. This defines worldliness. And the Bible says it's not of the Father, but of the world. And why spend our time in it? Because verse 17 says, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you're putting all of your stake into the things of this world, like being valedictorian, <laughs> having the, the uh, or being the, I don't know, going pro in whatever sport you might be in, or being a doctor, or, or it's again, nothing wrong with any of those things, but if all of those things comprise everything of your life, and they take up everything that you want to do, and you're just seeking after those things and not the things of the Lord, the world's going to pass away one day, and everything therein 
Simple question to ask yourselves is, what world are you living for? Again, nothing inherently wrong with those things if you have the right perspective and the right focus and the right drive. Some of you guys get so transfixed over your grades. Andy, would you mind actually going over to the fellowship hall and like turning the air on? Thank you. I was waiting for your blessing. Oh, yeah. I, do you even need to ask me? I'm just concerned if you know how to work it. Some of... Listen, listen. Some of you guys might be too transfixed about your grades. Some of you. Others we know are not. To the point where getting a 90 isn't good enough. Or getting an 89 isn't good enough. Some of you, maybe, honestly... For those of you who are striving for the four point whatever, okay, if you are able to do it and not have it take away from the things of the Lord, awesome, more power to you. But if you get an 85 or an 81 and you need to bump it up to that 91, it's just itching away at you, you might want to reevaluate your priorities. If you're going to spend extra time to try to get that 91 instead of just being content with the 81, it's eventually going to take away from time from the Lord or some area, shape, or form. That's just one example of many that you can look at. Worldliness is when you start getting into so caught up into this realm that it eats away at your walk with the Lord. So tonight we're going to look at three Old Testament characters that not only uh, exonerate, well, not necessarily worldliness, but three Old Testament characters. And really, as we go through James chapter 4, you're going to see how they help illustrate all of the things that we're going to cover in James chapter 4 when we throw the verses up on the screen. And specifically with point number one, talking about worldliness, I couldn't think of anybody else other than our man Esau. Anybody know anything about Esau? Any serious answers about Esau? He, had a lot of hair. he did. He was pretty hairy. He was a twin. Who was his twin brother? Jacob. That's right. So here we are in Genesis chapter 25. Follow along with me in verse 24. We get to find out a few things about them. Specifically, we're going to start with their birth. Verse 24. When her days to be delivered, this is talking about Rebecca, their mom, when her days were uh, to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out, red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called And Isaac, their father, was threescore years old when she bare them. Verse 27 is where you start to get a little bit of information about their character. The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter. He was sly. He was slick. He knew what he was doing in the field. Now, you and I might think of that, and especially depending on if you like to kill stuff, specifically moving animals, this time of year especially. I love doing that also. Uh, but that's not what the Bible is talking about here per se. It is, but whenever you trace hunters throughout the Bible, it's usually not a good thing. Anybody know who the very first hunter in the Bible is? man by the name of? Nimrod. Nimrod started the very first religion, started the very first governmental religious system known as the Tower of Babel. That's right. Esau was a cunning hunter, verse 27, a man of the field. You guys know what John chapter 4 says that the field is likened to? The world. 
The field is the world. Here we're finding out, as God is revealing truth to us in the Bible, that Esau was a man of the world. He was a worldly man. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. See, Jacob was more concerned about the inside. About the inside, the inner man. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29, And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Must not have been a very good hunter, because he got in nothing. And you know what's interesting about that? You can spend all your time that you want in the field. You can spend all the time that you want living in the world, and it's going to have the exact same effect on you, Christian. You are going to be faint. You are going to be worn out. The world gives you nothing and takes everything from you, like Esau was finding out here. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. It was chilly, for I am faint, therefore... I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. In other words, he was asking him, Hey, give me your right to reign. Because in history, especially in familial relations, the firstborn was always the one who was given the inheritance. The firstborn was the one who had the right to the throne. Jacob, being sly and deceitful, said, No, sell it to me and I'll give you what you need. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do me? You see, he cared more for the things of the world instead of the inheritance that was waiting for him if he just would have obeyed. If he just would have waited. And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised or hated. He counted it as nothing his birthright. This was huge. Because not only was it the birthright, but as we're going to see here in a little bit, Esau had another thing waiting for him. He had a blessing waiting for him. That if Esau would have just been a man focusing more on the inside and not so much the world and what the world had to offer him, Esau would have been in the lineage of the coming Messiah. He was the one. It would have came through him had he not done this and done what we're going to see here in a little bit. You see, when you spend too much time in the world, you start to miss out on the things that really matter. We just finished chapter 25. Next, chapter 26, just look down at verse 34. It gets worse for our man Esau. We find out something else about him as he's living in the world. Verse 34, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the what? Hittite. And Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the? Yeah. We don't have the time to trace the history of the Hittites, but just know... They are giving the nation of Israel trouble to this very day. That's the Hittites, among a whole bunch of other tribes and people groups. And Esau, an Israelite, takes a Hittite for his wife. And we don't have to do much studying, especially if you were here in our biblical relationships class, or you could just read the very next verse, verse 35. When he did that, it was a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. Why? What does 2 Corinthians 6, 
14 say? Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Can two walk together except they be agreed? See, when you're a man of the world like Esau, he didn't care. Because he wanted something in his flesh. Probably, she was probably a looker. Easy on the eyes. And he didn't care at all about his family or what his mom and dad said. He was going to do things his way. He was his own man. He was going to go his own way, despite what any other counsel somebody else wanted to give him. That ever happened to anybody in here? I can pull our other leaders up here to say, hey, how about that piece of advice I gave you? Did you take that? But we won't. We'll spare that. Chapter 27, don't worry, we're not going to read all of it. And actually, I have a lot of passages on here. We're not going to look at all of them. I just picked and choose a couple of verses, but they're here so you guys can do further reading later. Chapter 27, something very interesting happens. Again, his brother Jacob at this point in his life is very deceitful. We saw that already. Now Jacob's going to concoct another plan to try to steal the blessing. He already got the birthright. But now he's going to try to concoct a plan to steal the blessing. And he comes up with this very, very conspiratorial scheme. Anybody know what it was? Anybody familiar with the story? Yeah. Isaac was getting old and his eyes couldn't see too well. And so Jacob pretended to be his brother Esau and he stole the blessing from Isaac that was supposed to go to Esau. He stole it. And now Jacob has the blessing. And so we come here to verse 30. And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat. Huh. The boy got better. Better hunter now. See, the more time you spend in the world, the more you start to look like the world, and the more fluent you become being a worldly person. Where are we at? Verse 31, And he made him say, we and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison. And as you continue to read the rest of the story, you see Isaac just realized he was duped. He was duped by his brother, or by his other son, Jacob. And so Esau starts pleading. He starts crying, No, please bless me, father. Don't take this away from me. And then you get to verse 36. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He deceived me. He took away my birthright. Not so. How did Jacob get the birthright? Did he steal it? No. Esau willingly gave that away. Something else you find out about a worldly Christian or a worldly person like Esau? The more time you spend engulfed in the world system and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the more you start to believe your own lies that you tell yourself. Like Esau did here. He didn't even realize that, no, no, no. Esau gave away all of that. He gave it up willingly. But yeah, Jacob did steal his blessing now. Man. So he's crying over this. And he's upset. And as a result, he promises to hunt down his brother and to take him out. Jump over to chapter 28. 
and it gets worse for our man Esau. Does he repent? Does he change his ways? Verse 8, And Esau, seeing that the daughters of who? Yeah, same people group of the Hittites. Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. Homeboy's taking more wives upon himself, and again, vain of the godly sort. He just keeps falling further, further down the rabbit hole, getting caught up in the world system. So let's break this down. What are some takeaways we get from this? And let's see how it lines up with James chapter 4, the focus of our study tonight. First bullet point. You know what you find out about Esau as you study his life? Our lust to have what the world offers will kill your prayer life. We just saw in chapter 27 that, that Esau was begging and pleading his father, please, please still bless me. Please still bless me. But here's the thing. His father couldn't answer his prayer. He couldn't bless his prayer the way that he wanted to. And we see that this is how James starts off his letter. Verse 1, from whence come wars and fightings amongst you? Come they not hence even of your what? That war in your members. Esau and Jacob were at a war with each other because of this. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. You know, we often use this verse to say, hey, maybe this is the reason why your prayer is not being answered, because you're not actually putting forth the time to pray unto the Lord. But look at the context of it. Maybe the reason that you're not putting forth the time to pray in order to get an answer from God is because you're too busy living in the world and not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why you're not finding the time to ask Him. Verse 3, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. Why? That ye may consume it upon your lusts. Some for you guys to figure out is, man, if you keep praying and praying and you don't get an answer to that prayer request, maybe it's because you have the wrong motives. You have the wrong intentions for why you're asking for him to like me or her to like me or for fill in the blank. And it's not that it's wrong to pray for those things, but you know what's best? After you pray for those things, follow up the prayer with, Lord, nevertheless, Thy will be done and not mine. Because that way you're leaving it in His hands and you're saying, You are in control, Lord. You are in control, not me. I will be content with whatever you decide. But when you're living worldly and caught up in your lust, it's going to kill your prayer life. Second bullet point Esau's worldliness led him to submit to his flesh where he would ultimately serve men rather than God. That was the case. Esau became a servant. Philippians 3.18 says, For many walk, this is Paul writing to a church of Christians, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Keep that word enemies in mind for the next passage we're going to look at whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, 
Isn't that an interesting way for Paul to describe a group of Christians at a church? Their God, the one they submit to, the one they surrender to, the one they yield to, it's the lust of their flesh, just like Esau, who gave away his inheritance because he was hungry for some chili. And we laugh, and yeah, because how silly, but yet Christians do it all the time. Where you give in to make yourself feel good, and little do you realize you're losing your inheritance. What do I mean by that? We'll get to that in the third point. A couple other verses. Again, he became a servant. Romans chapter 9, talking about this very incident that the elder Esau was going to serve the younger Jacob. He became a servant. He became essentially a slave, and his people did. Romans 9 is talking about two nations, the nations of Esau or Edom and Jacob or Israel. And the Edomites ended up becoming servants. That's what happens. This world and everything you pursue after in this world system will enslave you if you're not careful. Third point, being a worldly Christian is adultery, spiritual adultery, in God's eyes and will affect our inheritance in the kingdom. Back to James, James chapter 4, verse 4. He says it, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Yikes, that's pretty serious talk. Know ye not that the friendship of the what? is enmity with God. That means division. It's not the same. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the what? Remember our passage in Philippians? I told you, remember that word. It's the enemy of God. Do you think the scripture saith in vain, verse 5, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? I have on here a couple of passages of scriptures that I want you guys to read later, but the one I do want you to see, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. The other passages that are on your study sheet is talking about the Christian's inheritance. Understand something. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, a verse that I'm very passionate about, and for those of you seniors, the gift that you guys get, I always write this verse inside your guys' gift because I think it's a verse that you guys need to be well acquainted with and you need to be familiar with because it's straight to you. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Everything that you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, men of the world. Because he says that know ye not that, that what it is that we do, we will receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve Christ. An inheritance, at least in the New Testament, in the church epistles, an inheritance is an earned reward. You see, we Christians don't go to heaven because of our own good works, do we? No. But after we become born again, more on that by the end of the message, after we become born again, we start serving the Lord Christ because not to keep our salvation or because He's going to take it away. No, because we want to store up treasures in heaven because one day the Bible says we'll get to see Him and we'll be able to cast all of these treasures, all of these crowns at His feet because of how worthy He is. 
but some of us might have more than others in here based upon your level of service. All of these passages, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, it has nothing to do with your salvation or getting into heaven or not. An inheritance has everything to do with your earned reward based upon your service to Him. And you realize that not everybody is going to produce the same amount. Part of that is because of how hard of a servant are you compared to others, but also you can have certain inheritances and certain rewards taken away from you as you study those passages out. You commit certain sins. You live a certain way, committing adultery, fornication, uh, uh, being in fighting with people all the time, whether it be physically or just in conversation. You lose those things. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. We looked at 14 and 15 last week. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Good advice for you not to be a worldly Christian. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. How are you treating each other? It's going to play a part in your inheritance, because look at the very next two verses. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as who? We get to learn something a little bit more here in the book of Hebrews about Esau that we didn't learn in Genesis. You know what's interesting about that phrase profane? When you actually look at the definition of it, that form of the word profane there, it means at the door of the tent. In the Old Testament, tents were very symbolic for worship. It was the tabernacle was essentially a tent where the dwelling place of God was. Profane, profane person, it's one who is right by the door of the tent. In other words, it's like a Christian who has one foot in church and one foot in the world. They're close to where God's presence is. They're nearby God's presence, but they're just not ready to completely fully enter therein and be in the presence of God serving him. That's what profane person means here about Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Verse 17, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. You understand, if you continue to mess around with the things of the world and be a spiritual adulterer, be a friend of the world system, you might get to heaven one day, Christian, and find you have nothing to cast at his feet. Because you're just giving away your inheritance. You're squandering your inheritance, much like the prodigal son. And what a sad day that's going to be for you. What a sad day that could be for me. If I find out, man, I had so much more I could have given, but I lost it because of this, or because I was so worldly over here, or because of the lust of my flesh, or the pride of my life, or fill in the blank. This is serious. And if you want to be a maturing disciple, if you want to be someone who's growing in your walk, you have to knock it off. There's only one way to win. Look at your outline. There's only one way to win the war within and the war without. 
against the flesh in the world. The only way to win the war is through death. It's death to self, dying to our desires and wants, dying to our lusts. Romans 8.13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall what? But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, kill the deeds of the flesh, ye shall what? Colossians 3.5, mortify, kill therefore your members which are upon the earth. That lust of the flesh, that lust of the eyes, that pride of life. And he even lists it. These are some of the things that will cause you to lose some of your inheritance. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. That's strong sexual desires. Inordinate affection is something that is beyond what is ordinary. Covetousness, desiring, wanting, which is idolatry. Yikes. Galatians 6.14. You need to mortify your desires to commit these things. Death. That's for your flesh. Here in Galatians 6.14, you have the prescription for the world. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You know what this looks like? It looks like this. Waking up each and every single morning and saying, Lord, this is not my life, it's yours. And all that I have is from you. And so here I am presenting myself, yielding myself, submitting myself, surrendering myself in every single element of my being, from my mind to my mouth, to my body, to my will, to my heart, everything, all goes to you. I surrender all. Have it, take it. This is your life, not mine. I don't want anything this world has to offer. I just want Jesus. I don't want anything that my flesh desires. I just want Jesus today. And then you watch how differently your day goes. And then you do it again the next day. That's what it means to die to self, to mortify these things. Next, turn over to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. We come to the next section of James 4, which is a great weapon and tool to combat the worldliness of a worldly Christian, somebody who's just living for self and wants to make a name for themselves, try to get the biggest house, the biggest cars, the biggest reputation, all of those things, and leave God out of it. Next, we're going to look at the greatest character trait one can possess in following the Lord. So we looked at Esau, as far as a worldly Christian. Now we're going to consider Hezekiah, which for those of you who were at summer camp, hopefully Hezekiah is familiar to you because he was part of your daily devotions. Anybody here read his story during quiet time at summer camp? I know people did. I think you guys are just forgetting or you don't want to share because you're worried about what the follow-up question is going to be. Benny, didn't you? Anybody know what he did? Hezekiah is one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. He's one of the greatest kings. In fact, outside of David and Solomon, he might be the greatest king. 
And he came to a point in his life where he realized, you know, we have a long-standing history of all of our kings not obeying the book because so many of our kings got so worldly and they became spiritual adulterers who actually set up false idols and false shrines and groves where they would sacrifice animals and humans over to these false gods and they'd build these great groves and these shrines up on the hills and Hezekiah came and he's like, we're done with that crap. And he just started tearing them down, burning them down, and then throwing them into the river. He created some of the best reforms in all the nation of Israel and brought true revival. He was a great king. And you ought to check out his story. I have it there, 2 Chronicles 29, chapter 29, all the way to chapter 32, verse 24. But then you get towards the end of his life. And as you're looking at your study sheet, I want you guys to note the order. I put this order on here so that you understand the chronology because, Jack, didn't you post something this week about 2 Kings? As you probably well know, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, you will have similar stories, but one book will give you more details here and the other book will give you more details here. And you have to kind of combine the two and see where do they all fit. I went ahead and gave you guys the proper chronology of how this all took place. But look up here on the screen for Hezekiah here in 2 Chronicles 32, 25. It says, Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, I failed to mention in 2 Kings chapter 20, you know what Hezekiah ended up praying and asking the Lord? For more time. And guess what? God answered it for him gave him 15 years of his life. He was getting ready to die. And God blessed him and answered his prayer by giving him 15 more years of life. Pretty huge. In fact, God did some other incredible things as you read 2 Kings chapter 20. Here it says, though, Hezekiah rendered, or he didn't pay it back. He didn't, he didn't say thank you, in other words. He didn't render again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. What we're going to read here in 2 Kings chapter 20 is what he did instead that got him in a little bit of trouble. Look with me in verse 12. At the time, Barodak, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Time out. Hold on. Who is he showing this to again? Babylon. The possibly next to Egypt, greatest picture and typology in the Bible of the world system. This king and this prince comes up to him and says, Hey, let me see everything that you have. And Hezekiah is like, Sure, come on in. I'll show you everything we got. Now think, those of you guys who love the book of Daniel. How does that play into this? Who came and ransacked Israel and besieged Israel and took them captive? Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of? 
Babylon. And did they just take the people? No. They took all of the goods. These guys right here are taking inventory of all the things that he has. Mark it down, Christian. The enemy wants to take inventory of all the goods that you have. He wants to know your strengths. The enemy wants to know your weaknesses so he can weasel his way in to try to find a way to take you out, just like Babylon did. And he's just showing him. Then Isaiah comes and says, bro, what are you doing? Like you just showed it everything to the king and the prince of Babylon? And Hezekiah's like, uh, yeah. And look at verse 16. Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house that, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried unto Babylon. Your sons also. He, he prophesies the entire book of Daniel right here, even saying that there's going to be eunuchs. Verse 19, Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which was spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? He realized it. And so you know what happens here? Jumping back to 2 Chronicles 32, 20 or 26. We just read 25. Everything that we just read in 2 Kings 20 happens in between these two verses. After Isaiah rebukes him, now you have verse 26. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. We just read that in verse 18. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Praise the Lord. He got lifted up with all of his goods, all of the gifts that God gave him, spiritual gifts as well, maybe. And he got lifted up in his heart and in his pride. And as a result, he ended up giving away that which was close to him to the enemy. And thankfully, a faithful friend come along, and I hope you have a faithful friend come along in your life when you're starting to act a little worldly or maybe puffed up in your pride, and they tell it to you straight so that you do what Hezekiah then did. He humbled himself for the pride of his heart. Now, there was a blessing with this. Hezekiah and Israel in his time didn't see any trouble from it. However few years later? Well, we know the rest of the story. You see, your actions won't have consequences always that you'll immediately see. It might affect you 10, 15, 20 years down the road. The decisions you make right now might have that effect on you. So be careful of the things that you do be careful of the places you go because you don't know what a day might bring. 2 Chronicles 32, 31, it says, How be in the business of ambassadors of the princes of Babylon who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. God left him, what? To try him, to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So here we find out that during that time when the princes of Babylon came, God was like, I'm going to see where your heart's really at. I could give you wisdom here, Hezekiah, but I'm going to take a step back just to see what's actually going on in your heart. 
Don't be surprised if God puts you in a similar situation like that, where you're being tried and tested and put to the test to see what is really there. Do I really serve God because I want to, or is it because I get something out of this? Because of people seeing me? Fill in the blank. So how, what does this mean? What do we learn from Hezekiah? Look at the subpoint on your study sheet. Humility or being humble. The word, both of those words, it means to make oneself low. To be low. A deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God. And that's what James is telling us to do here. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. You're a friend of the world. It's okay. It's not the end of your story. God will give you grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. If you find yourself being a worldly Christian caught up with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, make yourself low. Make yourself low in the sight of God, and he will give you the grace you need to help in time of trouble. Ugh. I won't have you turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8, check it out later. God said the exact same thing about the nation of Israel. That he put them through the wilderness. He put them through certain trials and certain times of testing to test to see what was actually in their heart. To see, do you really want to serve me? Or are you just doing this and coming to church because your parents make you? Do you really want to be with me in the Bible and you really want to hear from me or are you just doing it because you know you have to do it? Things like that is how it works in our day and age. Man. You see the second bullet point, being humble or being humbled causes you to see your need for the Lord where you submit all your dependence upon him if you truly have a if you truly have a vision of what the cross of Christ actually is when you like the dying thief on the cross next to Christ see this man hath done nothing wrong we justly are being crucified right now because of our sins but this man hath done nothing wrong Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, perfect sinless life. And what did he get at the end of it? A cross, two nails in his hands, one in his feet on top of a plethora of other beatings and bludgeonings. And he did that to pay a price that you could pay. Because the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages or the payment for sin being worldly, that payment is death. You could pay for it being eternally separated from him for all of eternity. But God commendeth or bestowed. He gave over his love to you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You see, while he was on the cross and he did nothing wrong to deserve the cross, he knew he was doing it for the joy that was set before him. The day in which you would hear this story for the first time in your life of what Jesus Christ did for you to pay the price of your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin, and to ultimately take your sin and cast it as far as east is from the west. West is from the east. 
so that you could be pardoned, so that you could have your sins forgiven and taken away. Even though you don't deserve it, because you're like those thieves on the cross on either side of him. Justly, we deserve it because of the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of life, because of how worldly we can be. When you are well acquainted and familiar and Christian, don't think just because you came to that point of decision in your life that you can just put that behind you. Every single day, we need to be reminded of that. We can't forget that we deserved that punishment and He took it for us. When you have that proper view of the cross, and you make yourself low and humbled in humility, and you see your own unworthiness in the sight of God, that's the perfect place where you can just come before Him and say, Lord, I still need you now as much as I did on that day when I received your Son. I need you. I need your help. I can't make it through high school. I can't make it in this home that I'm in. I can't make it at this job that I'm in without you. I need you now just as much as I did the day I got saved. You have that proper view of yourself every single day. And God will do what he says in James 4 verses 9 and 10. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness because you have a proper view of yourself. You have a proper view of your sinfulness. When you lower yourself, when you humble yourself in the sight of God, He shall lift you up. We don't have self-esteem problems as Christians. It sounds like it based upon what we're talking about. No, see, we're learning something here through James 4 and Hezekiah that humility is the greatest character trait anybody can demonstrate. Because when you make yourself low and humble yourself, God will lift you up and He will exalt you in due time. But see, the least preferred way, back on your outline, the least preferred way to possess this trait often comes through being made low. See, you can make yourself low, but sometimes a Christian, kind of like Esau, gets so caught up in the world and the world system that he has to be made low. He has to be humbled, usually through a trial, usually through afflictions and mournings and weepings, when the laughter in your heart goes away and your joy in your soul turns to heaviness. Maybe some of you in here are going through that right now. Take verse 10 and memorize it and let it be a promise from God that as you continue to remain low and ask Him, Lord, I'm dependent upon you. What is it you want me to learn through this time of affliction? He'll answer it, and he will help lift you up. Tell Siri to shut up. Lastly, life is too short to stay complacent or to come. I can't speak anymore. Life is too short. Siri, how do you say complacent? Shut, don't talk Life is too short to stay complacent in the world and do nothing for Christ. 
We're going to look at one last Old Testament character. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Consider Asahel. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Wrapping on up. Stay with me. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Life is too short to stay complacent in the world and do nothing for Christ. So to give you guys some backstory here, 2 Samuel kicks off and Saul, King Saul of Israel, is dead. Israel wants to go and they want to make David king, but there's a couple other tribes and a couple other Israelites who are like, no, it's Saul's and so it's rightfully his. So we're going to go ahead and make Ishbosheth, I believe it was. Don't quote me on that. Just read all of chapter 2, you'll find it out. They had their own uh, guy that they wanted to go ahead and set. Yeah, it was Ishbosheth. He was the son of Saul. They wanted to make him king because he was the rightful heir to the throne. So you have this battle take place between a guy named Abner, who's for Saul's boy, his men, and David's mighty men of valor. You have this battle take place between the two of them. And one of the guys who is fighting against Abner is a boy by the name of Asahel. He was one of the mighty men of valor. Look with me in verse 18. There were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. Vaden, you're a runner, right? Any other runners in here? Basically what it's saying here is this boy was swift. He was quick. He was quick. He could chase down anybody. Verse 19. And Asahel pursued after Abner. Again, Abner was a captain for Saul's people. He wanted to put Saul's son up on the throne. Asahel's pursuing after him. And in going, he turned not to the right hand nor the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left hand, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. In other words, Abner's saying, Hey, quit following me. You're about to get yourself into a load of trouble. Abner's warning him. Then Abner, uh, verse 23. Or no, sorry. So Abner gives him another warning in verse 22. Now you get to verse 23. Howbeit he, Asahel, refused to turn aside. Wherefore, Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib, and the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab also and Abishai, his brothers, pursued after Abner until the sun went down, and they were come to the hill of Amma that lieth before Gia by the way of the wilderness. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of an what? Hill. This murder took, not murder, it was warfare. This killing of Asahel, one of David's mighty men of valor, this swift, quick kid took place on a hill. Because he wasn't going to let the enemy go. He kept pursuing after him. And you and I would look at that and we would say, man, how admirable of him. We have an enemy that we fight every single day. That's why we have our armor in Ephesians chapter 6. we got to take it to the enemy. Here's probably one instance where you might want to reconsider. Because the reality is, Abner was a fellow Israelite. 
wasn't really his enemy. Not in the sense that we think from our spiritual enemy of Satan or anything like that. He wasn't. He wasn't of a Hittite or the Canaanites. He wasn't really his enemy, but they were fighting in this case, so he thought that it was. I'm actually going to turn to James 4 here, up on the screen, and then we'll look at the point on the study sheet. What, what do we do with Asahel? Verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? This is throwback to last week. Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I bet if Asa, well, I believe Asahel is in heaven right now, but I'm sure he's looking at this passage because the word of the Lord is settled forever in heaven. I'm sure he's looking at this passage. I'm sure he's wondering, I wish I would have taken this advice. You know what your takeaway is from Asahel? Look at the first sub point there. You have to learn, Christian, to pick your battles wisely. Because some hills just aren't worth dying on. God made it mentioned twice to say that they were on a hill. And it's funny because we have this expression in our economy today. Is that hill worth dying on? Is that a battle worth pursuing after? Don't be so swift. No, it's not a Taylor Swift reference. To so swift like Asahel. He was swift as a row. Don't be so swift to throw someone under the bus because it'll be your reputation that's killed. Right here. Speak not evil of one another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother. You might think you're getting back at them when in reality you are pursuing after something that's going to get you struck down. It will kill your reputation like that. Don't be so swift, Christian, to throw someone under the bus. It's going to be your reputation that's killed. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says that we all need to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? Has anything here from James 4 stood out to you or any of the three Old Testament examples we have that you can consider this? Am I doing this? Am I hurting somebody else's cause? And may I remind you to go back on our podcast and listen last week to James 3 for all of those ways that you can do that. Now, you know what you need to do in the second bullet point? Do the right thing. If you're not sure... Draw nigh, draw close, that should say nigh, N-I-G-H, stupid autocorrect. Draw close to him for wisdom. James 4, 15, 16, and 17 says, For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live. Context, live unto him and not unto the world. And do this, or do that. But now, ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Are you boasting in your grades? Are you boasting at how good you are? Are you boasting at 
your popularity, your boasting at your reputation, all the things that the world cares about but God couldn't give two rips about. Therefore, to him that knoweth do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Do the right thing. And if you're not sure, draw nigh to him. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. And lastly, the most assured way to do the right thing is to surrender your life to the Lord. Last place, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. This goes for everybody in this room. Surrender your life. Philippians 2. Perhaps outside of James 4, the greatest passage talking about humility, it's this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lowliness of mind. Translation, humility. Who being in the form of God, verse 6, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself Jesus of what? No reputation. And took upon him the form of a what? Remember, Christian, you have an inheritance you're serving for. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, made himself low, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, in light of that, God also hath highly exalted him, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow. Has yours yet? Has your knee bowed to the name of Jesus Christ yet? Of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. If it's not yet, your knee will bow one day. Will it be in heaven? Will it be on earth? Or will it be under the earth? And that every tongue, verse 11, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has your tongue confessed yet that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you come to that point in your life where you've seen your need for a Savior because this man had done nothing wrong? And the wages of your wrongdoing, of my wrongdoing, is death. But thank God, Jesus Christ humbled himself and submitted himself unto his Father's will to take upon himself my death and my debt. And he did it for you. And all he asks for in return is for you to bow the knee and to confess with the mouth Lord, I am a sinner. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross in place of my death. And I call upon you to save me. And if you genuinely believe that and in your heart, 
Your sins will be taken as far as east is from west. And you will be forgiven. Your sins will be placed behind His back. He will remember them no more. We just looked at that this week, didn't we, Sam? This is what's known as absolute surrender. And Christian, this also applies for you because many of you have bowed the knee and have confessed the tongue, but you're still clinging on to your reputation and to your grades and to what you want to do when you graduate and to what your career is going to be like. And you forget 2 Corinthians 5.15 and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Are you living for Christ, Christian? Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you still in control of your life, or is God? I'm asking that to everyone in this room. Whether you have bowed the knee and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, or if you haven't. Because there are many Christians who still want to be in charge of their life and do things their way, but I got news for you, that's not a mark of a maturing Christian. It's not a mark of a maturing disciple. And then there are some people who think they are Christians, but they've never trusted Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. They've never entered into a relationship with Him. If that's you, you have a moment right now where you can call out to Him. Will you bow your heads? The Bible makes it clear. If salvation came because we went to church, if salvation came because we were good, if salvation came because we took communion or we give and serve at our church, or if salvation came because we helped an old lady across the street, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. That's the very next verse after Galatians 2.20 that we just read. Salvation can only come when we surrender, when we realize I can't make it into heaven. I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me of all of my sin and my shame. Is there anybody in here that you can honestly say, I've never came to a point where I called upon Christ to save me. I never came to a point where I asked Him to be my Lord and Savior. Is there anybody in here that you can honestly say that's you, that you've never trusted Christ Anyone? Man, I remember I was a teenager in a room much like this, and I remember hearing that question, and I was too nervous to answer. And if that's the case, that's all right. Those of you who've been coming here, man, you can talk to any one of your leaders afterwards about this. And if you're a guest, man, talk to the person who brought you if you want to know more about it. We want to help you because it matters what the Bible says. It matters what's going to happen to us when we take our last breath on this planet. So as I pray, will you also pray? It could be a simple prayer of faith that will forever change the course of eternity for you.
Father, I want to pray right now for everyone in here. If they've not surrendered to you, whether they're lost and they need to surrender to you for salvation, or if they're a Christian and they need to surrender to you to serve you, to be a mature disciple, to grow in their faith. God, whatever the case is, whatever the need is, I pray that there would be many hearts that are just crying out to you in faith and surrendering their will and their life over to you now. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray for your guidance upon us as we leave here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.